two and two and one. Oh, shucks, I can't dance. Hello and welcome to Stories from the Open Gov, a podcast dedicated to telling the stories about what open government and open data look like. My name is Richard Pietro, and this season I'm investigating a very simple question. Why open government? And in this episode, I want to talk about motivation to change. Because one of the lessons I think we all need to learn in the open gov and the open data community is that the general public, our colleagues in the government and the private sector and not-for-profits and NGOs, well, they're not as self-motivated as we are to make open government and open data a reality. Heck, I would be shocked if open gov and open data was even an area of study inside post-secondary institutions. I know it isn't inside high schools yet, at least not where I live. Now, before I go on, I want to share these three prophetic quotes. And I'm going to start with this one from U.S. Congressperson Kathy McMorris Rogers. And in 2015, she said that the government is a 19th century institution using 20th century tools to solve 21st century problems. And this is a quote that we as OpenGov and Open Data practitioners use all the time. Now, here's one from Albert Einstein, and this is one that people, not just OpenGov and Open Data people, but just about anyone uses all the time, and that is, we cannot solve our problems with the same thinking we used when we created them. And lastly, and this is one that I use frequently, it's from Abraham Maslow, the the guy responsible for Maslow's hierarchy. And it goes as such. I suppose it is tempting that the only tool you have... Sorry, let me start again. I suppose it is tempting that if the only tool you have is a hammer, then you treat everything as if it were a nail. And there are lots of hammers inside the government. And, and it's interesting because... These sort of, we'll call them 20th century hammers, they're presenting with new 20th century, 21st century tools like OpenGov, Open Data, Open Source, Civic Tech, and things of that nature. And it seems as though there's one of two reactions. One is, is simply of intimidation, right? You know, I've been doing this job for 30 years, 20 years even, and I've been taught to do it this way. My performance is measured in this way. I'm not going to go out of my way and, and spend all my time learning this new way of doing things when either my retirement's coming soon or I just don't have it in me. I don't, I just, I don't feel like going back to school. I don't feel like learning again. And that is a very real sentiment amongst the public. The other sort of what I assume is is behavior from the non-Kool-Aid drinkers, from sort of the, the, the public out there, whether it's public servants or NGOs or whatnot, is that because they're a hammer, they're like, okay, well, instead of switching tools, 
I'm just gonna take this tool and use it like I would do a hammer. Sort of the idea of taking a drill and using the butt end of it to hammer down a nail. It's it's counterproductive. It's like taking, once again, these great 21st century tools and using them in ways that they're not particularly effective on how to be used. And that's, like I was saying a moment ago, is, is counterproductive. And in a way, the analogy that I use is kind of like we've got a whole bunch of Amish people that have been doing great barn raisings for centuries. And they've been using these saws and these hammers and these screwdriver screwdrivers for a long time. And then Bavila comes around and says, by the way, look at these power tools, look at these other methods, look at these other ways of building a barn. It's so much faster and so much easier and so much safer. And people are like, I don't think so. We're good. So what is the motivation that we're creating for, like I was saying, sort of our colleagues in OpenGov and Open Data? Sorry, let me rephrase that. Our colleagues that are not open government and open data Kool-Aid drinkers. What are we doing aside from just saying open government, open data is great and here's a white paper for you to read? And my argument is that there's no support network. There's no training. And not only that, we, people go on the defensive when we bring up something that will challenge their job. Right? It's kind of like I used the analogy in part one where the um, in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s, when the computer was being introduced in the workforce, people felt as though they were going to lose their job and it, 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 it creates that sort of fight or flight type of, of sentiment, right? And some people flew and Sorry, some people ran away. This is a terrible analogy I'm just uh, realizing as I'm saying it. But basically is that it put people on the defensive of, about their own job and it's not the right attitude when it comes to change, which is actually a quote that I love from uh, the former CIO from for the city of Toronto, Rob Meikle. And he's like, change happens all the time and, and we can't ch- change that fact. The only thing that we can change is our attitude towards change. And um, a lot of people have a bad attitude when it comes to change. So we need to do a better job of making people less defensive about open gov and open data and the change that it presents. But we also need to be better at training and providing a better support network. We need to help these public servants, these NGOs, and the private sector who are not Kool-Aid drinkers to adapt we needed to make it easier for them to use these 21st century tools. Otherwise, we're just going to keep hitting our head on the wall. And I'll give you some examples here. Let's go back to when before YouTube was bought out by Google. The guys who created YouTube as a platform, I refuse to believe that they thought back in 2004, 2005, whenever it was, that YouTube would be used the way it is today. And by that, I mean things like, in particular with regards to this conversation, is like do-it-yourself videos, right? If you really want to build your own doghouse, if you want 
to paint your kitchen, if you want to learn video editing, if you want to learn how to crack a phone or how to just do about anything, you can find a video on YouTube about it. And it's great. However, there's none of these videos about do-it-yourself when it comes to OpenGov and Open Data. This is what you're going to find instead when it comes to OpenGov and Open Data. And there's really only two types of videos. One is a kind of sizzle video, right? A, a sort of a rah-rah video. Here's what it is and explaining it. And, and, you know, you get them from the Open Government Partnership. I've done a whole bunch myself. Jurisdictions will do them. And, and they're usually about three to four minutes in length, maybe a little longer, uh, but they're just there to sort of rah-rah people around open gov and open data. And for the most part, they're not highly viewed. The second type of video you'll find on open gov and open data on YouTube are boring policy keynote presentations that are like 45 minutes long or an hour long. And it's just one static camera from a very from very far away with bad audio and who's going to sit through that it's boring as all heck for most people there's a lot of people listening to this podcast who love those videos absolutely and believe you me they do serve a purpose but if we're going to get more people into the fold if we're going to create that support network we need to create those like i call them the do-it-yourself videos. So like this, that support network is there. When someone learns about OpenGov and Open Data, they can go out and, and learn for themselves instead of doing a search and finding nothing. Now, some of you will say that, you know, there's toolkits that, exi- that, that exist out there, you know, like the Open Data Toolkit and a few others. I would argue that those, while they are probably very good, probably like the very good tools, they're not particularly well marketed. No re- no one really knows about them. And, and, and for the most part, I think they're just collecting digital dust. I mean, I know of a couple of them. I know there's hundreds, if not thousands of them out there, but I'm also sure that for the most part, they're not highly trafficked. What I would rather see instead, and going back to my YouTube analogy from a moment ago, we need like the unboxing videos for open gov and open data. We need tutorials. We need reviews. We need essays and explainers. We need like testing videos. We need to 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 create, you know, um, like forums, like you know, Reddit and Discord. And I know there's some of those channels that already exist on those platforms, but. And I'll be the first to admit it, I'm not as active on them as I should be, but we need to start going there and talking there. We need to create the XDA developers for OpenGov and Open Data. We need to create Tom's hardware for OpenGov and Open Data. These are the places where at least I know that I learned a whole bunch of different things without actually having to hire someone to teach me or hiring someone to do it for me, whether it is you know, root, uh, uh, rooting an Android phone or whether it's learning about the new phones and whatever. And like, I want to absorb content about OpenGov and Open Data. Let me rephrase that. I am sure there's a lot of people out there 
who want to absorb content and open gov and open data the same way they absorb content about everything else. And we as a community are failing on that side. We are not putting out these, these types of explainers and tutorials and reviews. We're, we're writing, you know, blog posts on Medium. We're writing, I don't know, communication press releases on government web pages and things of that nature. And that's not how the majority of people will learn. That's reserved for a very small bubble of people who are probably listening to this podcast right now. And I'll give you an example, particularly as it relates to me. I, I was never a creative person growing up in high school and in, in elementary school and in, in university. It's, it's something that was just not me. But now I think it's fair to say that I've, in the community, at least in Canada, I've been pretty much one of the most creative persons with OpenGov and Open Data content. Did a short film on OpenGov and Open Data. I've done memes. I did a fable animation. A whole bunch of different things. I mean, I, the Open Government tours is 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 very creative in its own way. You have the waiter riding a motorcycle doing a concert event type series around OpenGov and Open Data. But that didn't come naturally. Like I said, I was not a creative person. I was a very rote person, and and it was not until maybe I'll say like 2005. I think it was, uh, around those mid-2000s. And I saw the behind-the-scenes feature on how the Matrix was made and 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 how bullet time, like, you know, that, 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 that fancy bullet time photography that was used in the Matrix, how they used it. And I was like, wow, this is fascinating. And I, and, and those, and I became, it's funny, back at that time when I was, whenever I was buying DVDs for movies, my prerequisite was not I was just I was not just gonna buy a DVD for a movie that I liked. I was gonna buy a DVD for a movie that had a rich sort of I want to see the blooper reel. I want to see the outtakes. I want to see the cutting room floor stuff. If there's a featurette uh, that talks about you know that has interviews with the director and the writers and the producers and the actors, I wanted all that content because I found it fascinating how movies were made and then a little later on once again once youtube got a little bit more sophisticated um there was a channel that was born called every frame a painting and these were short videos highly researched highly produced um and there were the videos themselves were maybe i don't know three to eight minutes long tops and they would come out maybe every three to six months. And it was this guy named Tony Chow who would sort of analyze a scene or analyze a, a movie or something along those lines and talked about the craft of movie making and, and the kind of detail that I had never seen before. When I was watching these DVD behind the scenes, it was fun to hear about the process a little bit, but not so much the philosophies or the the craft necessarily. And 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 this guy, Tony Chow, every frame of painting, got right into it. And there's not that... He, he stopped making videos a while back uh, because I think he's doing work now for Criterion. But a lot of people saw that and 
built on it. Uh, another channel called Red Letter Media, they're very famous for doing their um, documentary-style essays, the most famous of which has to do with The Phantom Menace, but they've done dozens now and about different movies, all sci-fi and sort of, you know, nerd-like related. But they're great. They go right into the craft, and you're watching this, and you're absorbing this content, and it's it's fascinating. It's it's like, oh my god, I didn't. It makes absolute sense. I love it. And then all these other channels start coming out, like Studio Binder and and Lessons from the Screenplay and Nerd Writer. These are all great. Like I'm absorbing this content, and I'm essentially going to film school without paying a dime through these videos. And then uh, uh, I just thought of something. Um, I'm going to say maybe five to eight years ago, uh, a paid-by service called Masterclass came out. And basically what these guys, they took sort of what, you know, Nerd Writer and Every Frame of Painting was doing and took it to the next level. And essentially what Tony Chow and all these other channels were doing were talking about, say, what, what Aaron Sorkin, how he wrote and how he made it effective. Well, they said, Masterclass said, well, you know what? We're going to put together a, a whole sort of program where Aaron Sorkin will teach a class on how he writes. And you had to pay. And back then when they first launched, is you had to pay per class. Now they've, tr- they've turned their business model similar to Netflix and it costs $20 a month to be a member and you have access to this giant library of like Werner Herzog telling you about acting and directing and and it's and 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 it's about everything. It's not just about that. I think there's like master classes on botany and 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 just painting and it's just about everything. It's fantastic. That content exists out there and people can go out and learn by themselves. And it's not Coursera. It's not those I think they're called MOOCs. Those massive online something courses where you can essentially look at the content for the class for a Yale psychology class. It's not that that academic. It's more casual. So for me, learning about filmmaking, it happened. So instead of me watching The Bachelor on a Thursday night, I'd be watching those videos, right? So this, and now, and and I like I said, although <laughs> you know, I'm 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 just me. I'm not a big director, film screenwriter, or anything along those lines. I'm trying to 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 do as well as I can, obviously. But what I'm trying to explain here is, we need to create that for open government and open data newbies, right? If we're going to go out as a community, as a whole, and talk about how awesome open gov and open data is, we can't just offer a one-day workshop. Because back when I was working a sort of nine-to-five job, I used to go to a whole bunch of these training seminars about communication and how to use Outlook more effectively or use become a power user on Microsoft Excel. And I'd go there for a day and, and come back to my work desk. And then you forget everything. Um, 
because first of all, you're probably not using it as regularly as you think you would and you just go back to the well. But back then, we didn't have the support networks that we have now. Like you can go online and there are so many different forums and videos and posts and and content that you can learn about Microsoft Excel, how to do pivot tables and things of that nature. So if we're going to keep going out and talking about OpenGov and Open Data and how great it is, we and we've done that. We've done that ad nauseum for the last 10 years. But still, the community is not growing at the pace that I think it should be growing. And I think other people feel the same way. We now need to shift and start creating that content because, and you know what's funny? <laughs> this goes back to sort of this, you know, to hammer everything as a nail a little bit. A lot of the people that are creating these great blog posts and these great policy documents inside, and I'm talking about the open gov and the open data community here. All these people that are creating great academic papers, they too are hammers and their nail is, is these policy documents. But they also need to start to learn how to create great content online that is not just a white paper. And here's the crappy part about the whole thing. As we're creating this content, I guarantee you people are not going to watch it right away. Because I can tell you, and once again, I've not put as much effort into promoting my work as I probably should have in the past because, again, I was doing it on the side of my deck, my desk, uh, and I was, you know, it was a, it just, it was an outlet for my creative juices. And again, um, my primary occupation was being a waiter, but now I've, I've changed that philosophy of mine. But what I've come to learn is, the content that I create does not get a lot of views. So the content that the open government, the open data community, as we expand in creating this sort of, we'll call it the do-it-yourself content, the it won't be rewarding when you see that only 10 people have watched it. But it has to be there. And here's why. Two reasons. One is that it, it it's sort of the... the the Smokey the Bear mentality of only you can stop forest fires, only you can create open government, open data content, and we need it into the space. It has to be there, and I think it will propagate itself the more you do it, and we need to be comfortable in creating it. The second reason is, and I'm sure if it's happened to me, it's happened to others as well. It's like you fall in a channel that is just fascinating. It's like you watch a video and you're like, wow, this is great. And then you go into that channel's history of, or, or other videos and you see there's a giant list there of like a repo of other things. Oh my God, I want to watch that. I want to watch that. I want to watch that. And I think that's what's, what's going to happen with open gov and open data content is that eventually you're going to fall, like someone's going to fall on your video maybe a year or two or three from now and they're like, this is great. And then like, is there any more? And you'll have this giant library of other videos that are sitting in your repo. And this is what happened to a channel that I mentioned earlier, the Red Letter Media. And they had been doing these uh, video, the, these sort of 
documentaries that are analyzing movies uh, in the past. They ha- they were doing Star Trek: The Next Generation movies. I think they had done they had done four, five, or six, and they were about twenty to thirty minutes in length. And they were sort of sitting there, and eventually, they did a long, big, huge one. It was an hour and a half long. It was about the Phantom Menace, and again, it was great, but it didn't have any kind of real traction. And then something magical happened that would forever change Red Letter Media's presence on the internet. Simon Pegg, the guy who played Scotty in the new Star Trek movies and has obviously a whole bunch of other movies, retweeted their video. He found it online. So it's like, this is great. I'm going to tweet about it, I should say. Not a retweet. He tweeted about it. And then all of a sudden, Red Letter Media, and particularly this, this review of The Phantom Menace, just blew up. Who knows? Maybe you'll create something on open government and open data that will not be found for a year or two. But then... Barack Obama or Trudeau or Rick Mercer or John Oliver, whatever, will find it, tweet about it or do a, a, a video about it and it will, it will change everything. Don't forget, just because you create content and it's not viewed doesn't mean it's bad. It just means it's not viewed. And there's so much noise out there podcasts and videos and channels and things of that nature that it's bound to happen and sometimes you something goes viral and that's sort of catching lightning in a bottle other times it's manufactured it happens all the time Um, and other times you just get lucky eventually after hard work and you hear those stories from actors all the time whether it's Chris Pratt where you know he lived in his van. You, you hear those stories all the time. And, and I'm, why can't that be us as well? And by us, I mean the open gov and the open data community. So anywho, I'm done talking for now because this, this is obviously a very passionate issue for me. And I want to thank you all for listening. And as usual, please leave a comment. Leave a rating. Uh, tell us, or tell me, I should say, what kind of stories you'd like to, to, to hear. And until next time, let's make it open. <laughs>